Our sermon this morning is on Second uh, Kings chapters three through four. Turn to Second Kings three to four in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Second Kings chapter three on page two hundred and eighty-seven. So go ahead and turn there. Last week we looked at uh, chapters one and two. So we saw the death of King Ahaziah. We saw Elijah being taken to heaven on chariots of fire. We saw Elisha, uh, his successor, kind of step into the, the office of the, the you know, lead prophet, the true prophet of, of Israel. And today, in the next two chapters, we're going to see some, uh, some shifts in the, like the geopolitical landscape in and around uh, Israel and Judah. Some kings and kingdoms are going to kind of collide with one another. We're going to see um, several miracles from the prophet Elisha as the Holy Spirit begins to, to work through him and to minister to, to God's people. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Same thing as last week. The, the text is not going to be on the screen, so grab a Bible if you don't have one and, and turn there because that's going to be your only place to follow, uh, follow along. But we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm just going to pray, and we're going to jump right in to 2 Kings chapter uh, 3 and, and 4. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on our time together in your word. Lord, we pray that you would quiet our hearts. We pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to see and encounter uh, and experience and enjoy the, the beauty of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And we pray that um, we could be conformed to, to Christ's image as we uh, sit under your word together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, we'll start with chapter 3, verse 1. In the 18th year uh, of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for 12 years. So, um, this might, if you're, if you're a keen uh, observer and follower, this might look like a little bit of a contradiction. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, we saw that King Jehoram became the king of Israel during the second reign of another guy named Jehoram in Judah. So which is it? Did, did Jehoram in Israel become king in the second year of the other guy named Jehoram, or did he become king in the twelfth year of, uh, or I'm sorry, in the eighteenth year of King Jehoshaphat? The answer is both. Um, they, they kind of reigned as co-regents together for, for a handful of, of years. And so in that window of co-regency between father and son down in Judah, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram, that's when the other guy named Jehoram became king uh, up, in, up in Israel. And so, um, uh, so yeah, verse 2, he, meaning Jehoram up in Israel, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, though not like his father and mother, that's Ahab and Jezebel, not like them, because he put away the, ba- the pillar of Baal that his father had made. So the author is saying, Jehoram in Israel was a bad king, worshipped false gods, led the nation of Israel into the worship of false gods. Not as bad, like, almost like David was pretty much the standard of how uh, good a king could be in Israel. Ahab was like the standard of how bad a king could be. I mean, he was, he was a bad guy, worshipped false gods, and his wife Jezebel uh, kind of led him to do it even, even more so. And so he's saying Jehoram was bad, not as bad as Ahab, but he was still pretty, pretty bad. 
Verse 3, nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabot, which made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. So even though he wasn't as bad as uh, Ahab, he was as bad as, um, as King Jeroboam. Now that's a throwback to 1 Kings chapter 12. So Jeroboam was, he kind of started the splint, like the succession, like what made Israel like secede from Judah and kind of split it into two divided kingdoms. Um, you had King Solomon, and under him there was one united kingdom. And then uh, King Solomon's son Rehoboam uh, came into power after Solomon over one united kingdom. The problem was he was, uh, he was foolish. He was an idiot. And so he uh, caused the northern region of Israel to rebel against him. So you've got uh, Judah in the south kind of stays under the leadership of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And then Israel in the north goes with Jeroboam, who was an official. Yeah, um, it goes with, with Jeroboam, an official. And so they're kind of based out of Samaria. So you've got Judah, this region in the south, that's kind of uh, headquartered in Jerusalem. And then you've got you know, Jeroboam and company uh, kind of headquartered out of Samaria up in, up in Israel. Now, the first thing Jeroboam did in 1 Kings 12 was he realized, okay, I got 10 out of the 12 tribes of, of Israel that are following me. So I'm doing pretty good. I got a good following here. The problem is I don't have what really matters in terms of real estate, and that's the temple. All of these people and all of these 12 tribes up in northern Israel are all going to, they're going, eventually they're going to feel a pull to go down to Judah and worship God in the temple instead of being up here. And that might make them, you know, align more with Rehoboam, the guy that I'm kind of fighting with and squabbling with. So the first thing he does is, uh, you know, institute uh, the worship of uh, golden calves, kind of like Aaron uh, in, in Exodus. And so he makes golden calves and he says, you know, you don't have to go to the temple to worship God anymore. You can just worship these golden calves up here in northern Israel. And so this author is saying uh, King Jehoram uh, is son of Ahab. He's bad like Ahab. Maybe not as bad, but he's still pretty bad. And he's like Jeroboam in that he's leading people to worship other gods up in the northern region of of Israel. So that's, that's uh, the, the, the succession that's kind of taking place from Ahab. The first son of Ahab uh, that took over was Ahaziah. We saw him in chapter 1. He's the guy who fell through the floor of his house and then got sick during his recovery and, and died. And so now this is his brother, Jehoram. And so things aren't going great in the kind of the royal family, the royal house up in, up in Israel. And that kind of prompts what we saw in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. So chapter 3 is basically, if you take chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 3 is, an, is just expounds on that. Moab rebels against Israel. It says, now Mesha, chapter 3, verse 4. Now Mesha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So the way that foreign policy typically worked in the ancient Near East was not unlike, you know, if you watch The Godfather. Uh, you know, or, or a mafia movie where you, you bring tribute, you have patron states and vassal states. So whoever the biggest, strongest state was, led by the biggest, strongest king with the biggest, most powerful army, would go to all of the smaller states and say, you want protection? I'm happy to give you protection. You have to bring me tribute. And they would kind of negotiate based on how strong I am and how weak you are and how vulnerable you are and how much protection you would need from me and how much I can squeeze out of you without, you know, you like revolting against me, kind of negotiate a price and you would just deliver that tribute from the vassal state to the patron state every month or every year, whenever it was. And so um, Moab was a vassal state to Israel uh, for a long time. And then when Ahab dies, the king of Moab's like, I'm not, 
you know, your dad, King Ahab was good and big and strong. He, like, he could get this out of me, but you guys are idiots. Like, you're falling through the floor, dying just with a domestic accident, and this other guy's a loser, so I'm not going to pay, uh, I'm not going to pay the king of Israel uh, anymore. So verse 5, when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against Israel. Uh, So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. So Moab is basically saying, I'm not giving you my lunch money anymore. Uh, If you want it, come and get it. We're all the way down here on the other side of the Dead Sea. You probably don't even know how to find us anyway. We're not doing it. And so Israel's like, if you want to fight, we're going to do it. So Israel mobilizes their army and says, let's go. Let's, Let's, you know, make sure that the king of Moab knows that he does, in fact, have to pay us tribute every month, and if he doesn't, we are going to, to hurt him. And on the way, verse 7, he says, he sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and said, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go to battle with me against Moab? It wasn't long ago that the, the Israel and Judah split apart with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, but apparently they, I mean, they're still border states, and so they still uh, have to have some sort of diplomatic relationship with each other, and that, that relationship usually looks like just, you know, We'll, we'll come together, we'll align together when it's mutually agreed upon and when it's in our, our best interest. And so he says, will you go with me? And he says, yeah, I will go. I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. Judah, Israel, back together again. We're going to go take on the bad guys. And then they said, verse 8, they said, well, by which way shall we march? And Jehoram, the king of Israel, answers, by the way of the wilderness in Edom. So they say, we're gonna, yeah, this is another map kind of zoomed in. We're going to go from Samaria. Samaria, I'm going to come down here to Judah and kind of get you and all of your support. And then we're going to go down by way of Edom and kind of come into Moab from the, from the south, kind of through this, this uh, you know, wilderness area. So that's our plan. That's going to be where we go. Verse 9, then the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or any animals that followed them. So they're at getting, they're, they're, you know, not really finding where they're needing to go. They're thinking, man, we might have just come all the way out here for, for no reason. We might die out here in the wilderness before we even fight a battle. Verse 10, the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them, like, into the hand of Moab. Did God call us here not to defeat Moab and get him to kind of submit to us and, and bring us tribute again? Or did he bring us down here so that he would defeat us? Like, why did we even come here in the first place? Verse 11, Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Jehoshaphat was the king in Judah. He was a good king. Uh, Jehoram in Samaria was a bad king. Jehoshaphat in Judah was a good king. And he's like, well, let's just ask a prophet. We love God. We follow God. Let's, let's do it. Then one of the king of Israel's servants said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to see Elisha. When Elisha sees King Jehoram, who's a bad king and worships false gods, he says, what do I have to do with you? Jehoram, go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. That's Ahab and Jezebel, right? Go worship the Baals and the Asherahs that, that your parents worshipped and the ones that, like, my mentor Elijah had to fight against at the, you know, against their prophets and call down fire from heaven. You, you like false gods? Don't come to me begging for mercy now that you need help. Go, go ask for help from the gods that you and your parents have worshipped. But the king of Israel said, no. It's the Lord who has called these three kings to give, to give them into the hand of Moab. So Jehoram is saying, look, I, like, bygones be bygones. 
you know, I, I am on your team now. I'm, I mean, he doesn't, right? Like, it, it, uh, by all accounts, Jehoram has and is still worshiping false gods, um, but he's at least kind of verbalizing that, look, I uh, am, am on your side. I'm on the side of God. I'm, I'm kind of, God has called us to this mission. Verse 14, and Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. So I will, you know, I, if, if, I'll help you on, the, on account of Jehoshaphat because he's a good God who worships God, or he's a good king who worships God, not because of, don't, don't, don't misinterpret my willingness to help you as thinking that I approve of you and approve of your leadership in, in Israel and in Samaria. I don't, and it's, and it's not. He says, because of Jehoshaphat, because of this righteous king of Judah, I'll help. So bring me a musician. Verse 15. Um, so it's probably to create space for, you know, for Elisha to hear from the Lord and meditate so that he could kind of deliver this word from, from the Lord. Small disclaimer. Um, you know, the, the, if we want to hear from the Lord today, uh, we can. We have a surefire way to do that, and it's by reading his word and studying it and meditating on it and memorizing it and, and applying it. There's people who might point to this verse and say, ah, see, like, if you want to hear from the Lord, then just, like, put on some music, kind of get into this, like, weird heightened emotional state, and you'll hear something from the Lord that, uh, you know, is more authoritative than his word in the Bible or maybe even contradictory to his word in the Bible. And so this verse is not licensed to do that, right? The, the, the reality for us today is that God has spoken, does speak consistently to us, not through some sort of like emptying our mind and trying to hear something from God that we have to like play music to conjure it up, but rather just from simply the ordinary means of grace, just reading God's word, uh, studying it, and, and kind of listening to his spirit speak to us through his, his word. But Elisha says, I'm, I'm going to deliver a special prophetic word uh, for these kings. And so he brings a musician. The musician plays, uh, and the hand of the Lord came upon him. Verse 16, it says, he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed will be filled with water so that you shall drink in your livestock and your animals. They've been going for days now. They're getting thirsty. They're running out of resources. Their animals might die of thirst or starvation on this trip. And so God says, I'm going to bring water supernaturally. It's not going to be through natural means like like rain or or wind, but I'm going to bring water supernaturally to strengthen you and your people. And then he says, verse 18, this is a light Thing in the sight of the Lord. So, so God providing for uh, the king, the, the righteous king of Judah and the wicked king of Israel, God providing for you in this way is nothing. It's a piece of cake. It's literally the easiest thing that he could, could just snap his fingers and, and do. And not only am I going to bring you water for your animals and for your people to be refreshed, but uh, verse, verse 18, he will also give the Moabites into your hands. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and you shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So you're going to have total, complete, you're just going to decimate Moab. You're going to, you know, make them sorry that they ever decided to not bring you uh, tribute. You're going to absolutely uh, destroy them. And then the next morning, verse 20, the next morning, about the time of offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom until the entire country was filled with water. 
And so water kind of rushes up, and now they have this supernatural provision from God, right? I mean, even in spite of Jehoram and Israel's idolatry and kind of defecting away from worshiping God, God is merciful to them and provides water for them to, to drink. And when all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight up against them, they all put on armor from the youngest to the oldest, and they were calling out, called out to draw up on the border. So the king of Moab was like, hey, now it's time to pay the piper. We just said, like, uh, you know, a few days ago we said we're not going to pay Israel anymore. We thought a fight was probably going to come as a result of that. Here it is. Let's everyone, right? I don't care if you're, you know, a little kid playing t-ball. I don't care if you're an old guy that, you know, is retired. We're all going out to fight because otherwise Israel's going to uh, just destroy us. And when they rose early in the morning, verse 22, the sun shone on the water and the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. Now there's like a valley that's part of the, the landscape here that has a stones with a reddish hue in it. And so the combination of that reddish hue of the stones uh, plus the water that was not typically there at this time of year that has kind of been supernaturally brought in by God and the sun shining on it early in the morning kind of gave the standing water that they were looking at a, a reddish uh, tint to it that looked like blood. In verse 23, and they say, hey, that's blood. Uh, the kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now, Moab, to the spoil, right? All, I'm, like, I'm sure that's what happened. All of the, 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 the three enemies that kind of all allied together to come attack us, they probably just all fought together and killed themselves and left all their stuff for us to come get. So let's go get it. Which might seem stupid. It might seem like a foolish assumption to make. That like, oh, I see water. Let me automatically assume that from that water, that means that, you know, this, this like ridiculous thing has, has happened in our favor. Sounds foolish, but um, that exact same thing uh, actually happened. Uh, they, it happened to them. So like, so in Second Chronicles chapter 20, there's another episode of something that happened just prior to this one here in, in uh, 2 Kings 3. Uh, and um, Judah is being invaded by Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. So we've got another kind of, you know, skirmish happening where Ammon and Moab are coming down to fight against Judah. And it says when they do, uh, it says for Second uh, Chronicles 20, it says the Ammonites and the Moabites rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy them and annihilate them. So you've got three guys, one of which is Moab, going to attack Judah. And on the way, like there's no honor among thieves, on the way, they just start fighting with each other. And they, they kind of, uh, you know, arret, like get rid, like they, they defeat the army from Mount Seir. And it says, after they finished slaughtering those men, then they turned and went and fought one another. So all three of these guys, one of which is Moab, fought on their way to Judah and didn't even make it there because they just killed each other on the way to the enemy that they were actually going to fight. And so now Moab's like, I think they just did that same thing to us. Like, I think that those three kings couldn't get along with one another. Uh, like, they couldn't even make it to the battleground. They were fighting each other on the way. So let's take advantage and let's go get all of their stuff. Verse 24. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites arose and struck the Moabites until they fled before them. And they went forward and they struck the Moabites as they went and they overthrew their cities and every good piece of land and every stone they threw until it was, was covered. And they stopped up every spring of water and they felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Hariseth. The slingers surrounded and attacked it. So the entire region of Moab is just destroyed, it's decimated, and all of the, you know, kind of the, the 
king and the inner circle around him, they're all kind of tucked away. They're hunkering down in Kir Hariseth, thinking, man, like this is our last little space of like ground where we can be safe. And, and they're surrounding us and they're trying to kill us and they're trying to attack us. So everything has happened exactly like Elisha said. God's going to give you water. God's going to refresh your troops. God's going to give you victory over the Moabites. But Elisha didn't say that that would be the end, right? He didn't say that's it. That's all that's going to happen. And he didn't say uh, you are. This victory is going to ensure that Moab starts paying you tribute again, and they kind of are. They kind of recommit as your vassal state because uh, you know Moab is going to throw a hail mary here in verse twenty six. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him. He took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Last ditch effort. Let's try to, you know, burrow our way out. Let's try to find some, let's try to pull a a draw from the jaws of, of defeat here. Let's try to do that, but he couldn't. And so then verse 27, in even more of a last ditch effort, more of a Hail Mary, it says, then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and he offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. So he's down to his last he's down to his last option at this point. He says, Our country's been defeated. I'm about to get killed. We are we have no hope. We have no options. And so my only shot, my only hope uh, is to try to appease my God, whose name was Chemosh. Uh, I'm going to try to appease my God by by killing my own son and offering him as a sacrifice to uh, my God which is pretty deplorable, pretty disgusting, but was not out of step for a lot of the worship of a lot of the deities in the ancient Near East. Uh, self-mutilation, I mean, child sacrifice, self-mutilation, sanctioned prostitution, sexual immorality, abuse. So all of these things were like part of what it meant to worship many of the gods uh, outside of the God of Israel. So so that's when God says you're supposed to worship me and only me and not me alongside all the other gods, that's partly why. It's because all of the other gods in the ancient Near East were really uh, just pretty pretty gross and pretty, pretty uh, bad gods. And so he kills his son. He offers him as a sacrifice. And it says, and then, then great wrath came against Israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. It's kind of a weird verse. Well, it's not weird, but uh, it could be, there's, scholars are kind of all over the map on how they interpret it, right? And so um, some say this is referring to the wrath of God against Israel, right? So, so there came, so came great wrath from God against Israel and they returned to their own land, which is kind of weird because God up until this point seems to have been blessing and encouraging this, you know, mission. And he, Elisha kind of said, I'm going to give you victory. So it would seem like a weird you know, a little out of place for this to be the wrath of God coming against Israel through the the uh, Moabites, but maybe some other guys say no. This is the wrath of the Moabites against Israel. So, so all of these Moabites who are losing and they're about to die, they see the king do this great, you know, this act, this like incredibly inspiring act where he sacrifices his own son and says, "All right, now let's go. Like, let's kind of get a second win and let's go try to, uh, you know." fight off our our enemies. Maybe. Uh, Some say that, so some translate the the word wrath a little bit differently and the word against a little bit differently. So instead of of translating it as there was great wrath against Israel, they translate it, there was great anger 
or, or even disgust or indignation throughout Israel. So the word could be against or throughout kind of has a little bit of, of, a, of a broader semantic range. And so you could take those same Hebrew words and say there was great disgust and indignation throughout all of Israel, and so they just went home. They, they, they left and they kind of returned to their own land, which would basically mean that they see this, this deplorable act where this king murders, kills his own son, offers him as a sacrifice, and they're like, we don't even want your money. Like, we, we're out of here, man. You're weird. This is gross. We, don't, we would rather just go home and leave you to do your own thing. We don't even want your, your money anymore. So I'm not sure which of those it, it is. It's, you know, the, the, the bottom line is, like, no matter how you interpret it, the bottom line is Israel uh, went there to kind of defend this vassal patron relationship and kind of get the, the money of tribute flowing back to them, and they left. They didn't do it, right? They, they, they essentially won the battle, but then they didn't, you know, like finally, they didn't kind of lock their victory into place and secure a vassal relationship. They just kind of left for whatever, for whatever reason. And so they leave and head back, and that's kind of the, the end of this uh, you know, account in chapter 3. In chapter 4, uh, we see um, the, uh, 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 several miracles of the prophet Elisha. Verse 1, it says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophet cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And now you know that, that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. You've got another prophet in Israel that kind of was a contemporary of, or maybe a protege of Elisha. And he dies and leaves behind a wife and two kids. And they immediately kind of go in, into credit, start to default on their, their loans. And so they come to Elisha and say, you know, we, we need help. We, we need some financial help here. Uh, we have no income and no, no way to, to pay for these expenses, and we're going to kind of all be sold into slavery and or prostitution. Verse 2, Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in your house? And she said, uh, your servant has nothing except uh, a jar of oil. And then he said, all right, well, then go outside and borrow vessels from all of your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. The word jar uh, in verse 2 means like a little tiny, like a flask, like a little tiny jar. And these vessels are, are much bigger and larger. So he says, go grab all of the vessels you can uh, from every neighbor in the vicinity, all of them that they'll give you, and bring them back. Then go in and shut yourself behind the door uh, and pour into all of these vessels. And when one vessel is full, set it aside. Verse 5, and so she went with him, or she went from him, shut the door behind herself and her sons, and she poured, uh, and, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. Verse 6, when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then at that moment, as soon as they had filled up all of these vessels that they were bothering from all, borrowing from all of their neighbors, the, the oil stops flowing out of this flask. And she comes to the man of God, to Elisha, and says, or and he says, go sell the oil and pay your debt so that you and your sons can live on the rest. So it's this miraculous, supernatural provision of God. When God's people cry out to him, he is not deaf to their cries. He is not impotent to, to you know, address their cries and to respond to their cries. He's not indifferent. God loves his people. He cares for his people. He wants to provide for his people. He is sovereign and he is able to provide for his people. That's true for this widow who was in a particularly vulnerable position as a woman with two children in the ancient Near East. 
It's true for us right now. God uh, wants to provide for us. He cares about us. He is sovereign and he is able to provide for us. And so it's just a matter of trusting in him, hoping in him, holding fast to him and to his word and persevering as we wait for God to, to provide. Verse 8, one day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So he stops and eats, and it says whenever he passed that way, he would turn there and eat food. So he's kind of got this little, you know, kind of ongoing relationship. Every time I come by, I'm going to stop and get something to eat, and you kind of keep feeding me. It's got a good little situation here. And she said to her husband, behold, I know that this is a holy man of God who's continually passing our way. Let's make a small room for him. Uh, with walls and a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp, so that whenever he comes, he can go here. And one day, he came there, he turned into the chamber, and he rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Hey, call the woman, call the Shunammite. And he called her, and she stood before him, and he said, Say to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What can we do for you? Right? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the, the army? And he's saying, Look, you're incredibly generous, incredibly nice, hospitable. I'm, you know, I'm, I've actually, I'm pretty well connected. I've, I've got, you know, I've networked all of, you know, I can talk to the king. I can talk to, you know, power brokers. How can I serve you? Who can I put in a good word uh, for you with? And she says, I dwell among my own people, meaning I'm good. Like I've, I've got money. I've got property. I've got a husband who has earning power. Uh, and even if something were to happen to him, I live with my family. I live with friends. I've got people. I've got a safety net. I'm good. You don't need to, to worry about me. And then he said, well, what is to be done to her? He's kind of looking at Gehazi and presumably she's gone away at this point. Uh, he says, what's, what's to be done with her? And Gehazi says, well, she has no son and her husband is old. So he, you know, don't sugarcoat it, right? Like her husband's old. He's about to die. And she doesn't have a son, so maybe she could use a son. And, and Elisha says, all right, well, then call her back. Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she says, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your servant. So this idea, like, you know, you're, like, she's so overwhelmed at the thought of having a son that she just assumes that that's, there's no way that's true. My husband and I have been married a really long time. We've never had any kids. We've wanted kids. We've tried to have kids, and we can't. Like, what you're saying is so outrageously, incredibly good that, that I can't even believe that it's true. Please don't, don't lie to me. It was, culture was different in the ancient Near East than it is today in terms of how, you know, the, like, Elisha didn't have to say, do you want a son? Because if you do, I'll give you one. He just, like... You just, everyone wanted children. Everyone wanted all the children they could get, particularly sons, but in children of any kind were considered to be a huge uh, blessing, right? If you, you know, I mean, whether you're a father or, like, whether you're a husband or a wife, you wanted, I mean, you wanted a, a child that could carry your name on into the next generation. You wanted a child that could take care of you and protect you and provide for you in your old age. There was zero, like, ambiguity on whether, you know, if you didn't have children, it wasn't because you didn't want them. It was because you couldn't have them. Everyone just assumed that every single one person wants, a, wants as many children as they could could have. And so she says, man, don't, don't lie to me. That's, that's, there's no way that you, could, that you could do that. No way that you're willing to do that. But, verse 17, but the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, and Elisha had, just as Elisha had said to her. So a miraculous birth to a woman who's not able to have children. If that's kind of bringing to your mind 
you know, other instances, right? If that's, if that's reminding you of Abraham and Sarah, it should. If it's reminding you of Isaac and Rebecca, it should. If it's reminding you of Jacob and Rachel, it should. If it's reminding you of uh, Hannah in 1 Samuel, it should. There was a recurring theme in the Old Testament uh, that, that uh, and ultimately that kind of comes to fruition in Mary, right? A, a, person, a miraculous birth to a virgin woman in the New Testament. But the, the recurring theme is that children are a blessing from God. Life itself is a, is a blessing from God. And God is able to provide for his people even through the most unlikely or the most impossible of circumstances. And so uh, one of the ways that God does so is through giving his people uh, children, right? The old, the old covenant is kind of setting up for, for, you know, all 39 books of the, old, of the old covenant, right? It's saying you need salvation, you need God to save you, God is going to save you, he's going to make a way for you to be saved, and the way that God is going to do that is through a miraculous, right, unto us, a child is born, and the government, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Father, Everlasting, or Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, right? The, the idea is that there's going to be a child born of supernatural, miraculous means that's going to save the people of, of God. And so this is yet another kind of piece to that puzzle that's being added as we work our way through the Old Testament. So, child is born, starts to grow up. In verse 18, when the child had grown, I don't know how, how old that is, but uh, maybe not full adulthood because of the, the way that the story kind of takes place, but a few years have gone by. It says, when he had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, ow, my head, my head. So this son uh, experiences an acute headache of some, of some kind. We don't really know what it is beyond that. Guys have speculated, right? So some, some have said, oh, this is probably sunstroke that might uh, be accompanied with a, with a severe headache. Some say meningitis uh, or cerebral malaria. I don't really know much about those medical conditions other than uh, there's been some, some medically inclined people that think that might be what's happening here. One way or the other. He has a headache, uh, and so his father says to his mother, carry him to his mother. He doesn't think much of it, right? This is just a kid who wanted to come to work with his dad and lasted about 90 minutes and said, nope, I'm done. I want to go home, play video games. He says, all right, someone take him home. I'm sure his headache will clear up as soon as he gets home and he can, you know, just chill out and do what he, what he wants. So when he lifted him up and brought him to his mother, verse 20, the child sat up on her lap until noon and then he died. So wakes up in the morning, goes to work with his dad, comes home early to late morning, goes home and then dies in his mother's arms. Verse 21, and then she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, the special room that they had made for Elisha, and shut the door behind him, and he went out, and she called her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may go quickly to Elisha, to the man of God, and then come back again. She doesn't tell her husband why she's going. She just says, I'm going to get a donkey and a servant. I'm going to go find Elisha. And so obviously the husband is a little bit, right? Will you go to him today? Neither new moon nor the... Right? It's like the middle of the work week. It's not, it's, not the, it's not the weekend. I'm working. We have a kid. You're going to leave our kid, you know, to go. Like, it's not a holiday. Why are you going to go make this trip to go see the, the, the prophet uh, Elisha? So he doesn't know his son is dead. He just knew that his son didn't want to finish the work day, which he probably was expecting in the, in the first place. And she says, don't worry, all is well. So she, she's not telling him that, that their son died. 
Verse 24, then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace unless I tell you. So they sent out and they came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her coming, he, sent Ga- he said to Gehazi, his servant, go, there's the Shunammite, run at once to her, meet her and say, is all well with you? How's your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered Gehazi, all is well. Which seems weird. Like she told her husband, everything's fine. Didn't tell him that the son was dead. Now she's not telling Gehazi that the son is, is dead. You know, if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're skeptical at this, at this point, you might think that this is like the, you might think she's in denial, right? Like the, like the hysterical female trope that you'll like, you know, see, see or whatever, right? Like she's, kid died in her arms, She's something in her brain snapped, and so she goes and like sets him on the bed as if he's just taking a nap, and then tells everyone that he's fine, and kind of does all of this like frantic, hysterical uh, behavior. I don't personally put a lot of stock in the hysterical female trope. Uh, some of the most, some of the coolest, calmest, most in control people that I know are females, and some of the most hysterical, irrational, impulsive people that I know are males. So, um, I don't think the woman is in denial or not able to face reality. I think that she just wants to, she like is not, she's not willing to concede the, the fact that she knows her son is dead. She's not in denial about it, but she's not willing to concede that he can't be brought back to life because if he was brought to life in the first place through this miraculous supernatural means from Elisha, then presumably he can be brought back to life by that same prophet. And so she's not going to tell anyone or consult with anyone or ask anyone or start to make funeral arrangements with anyone until she talks to, like, Elisha's the first one that I'm going to speak with and talk to about this situation, right? I'm going to give him an opportunity to raise this child from the dead before I bring anyone else into the, the inner circle about it. Verse 27, when she came to the mountain of God, to the mountain of the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. And the man of God said, no, leave her alone, for she's in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? I didn't ask you for this. Like, you, you gave me the son of your own accord. You, I didn't ask you for it. You volunteered it. I told you, don't deceive me. Don't, you know, don't get my hopes up to have a child if I'm not really going to, to have some. This, this whole thing was your idea, and now this son is dead. Verse 29, he said to, to Gehazi, tie up, tie, my gar- tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet them. If anyone greets you, do not reply. Run as fast as you can. Go lay my staff on the face of the child's body. And then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Right? Elisha, I am here with you until you either restore the life of my child or tell me in no uncertain terms that you are not going to. But until one of those two things happens, I'm going to hold out hope. I'm going to trust that you can. I'm going to trust that God can. And I'm going to follow you where you go. I'm going to remain with you, either until you heal my boy or until you tell me that you're not going to. And so he arose and he followed her. And Gehazi went on ahead of them and he laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound, there was no sign of life. And therefore he returned to meet them. So they're on their way back from Elisha's home to the woman's home. Gehazi's gone the entire way, put the staff, and now he kind of circles back and says, the child is not, the staff thing didn't work. I I put the staff there, the child is not awakened. 
When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed, and he went in and he shut the door behind the two men and he prayed to the Lord. And then he went up and he lay on the child, his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out upon him, and the flesh of the child became warm. So there's these, like, it's, a, it's slowly, the, this, slowly starting to happen, signs of life. And then he got up again, and he walked once again back and forth around the house, and he went and stretched himself upon the child again. And then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. More life, more vitality, more strength. And then Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he called her, and when she came in, he said, Pick up your son. And she came and she fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, and she picked up her son and went out. So again, a lot of throwbacks. A lot of throwbacks and a lot of foreshadowing in this, this chapter. So, so if, um, you know, if... Um, this, like if the, the barren woman having, becoming pregnant reminds you of the, the patriarchs in Genesis, if this reminds you of a miracle of Elijah, then that's what it's supposed to do. If you're getting those kind of bells going off in your brain, uh, if, if this reminds you of 1 Kings 17 when Elijah did something similar, that's what it's supposed to do. Elijah stretches himself out on a boy, and Elisha stretches himself out on this boy. The boy's life is... No, no in, in 1 Kings, I think the, the boy's life is restored immediately, whereas this one, it kind of happens slowly over the course of several minutes. But nevertheless, Elisha restores the life of a little boy whose mother needs him. Elisha restores the life of a little boy whose mother needs him. If both of those incidents are kind of reminding you of and pointing forward in your brain to the ministry of Jesus, then it's, that's doing what it's supposed to do. Jesus restores the life of a widow's son in Luke 7. Jesus restores the life of the daughter of a synagogue leader named Jairus in Luke 8. Jesus restores the life of Lazarus, his friend, in John chapter 11. So this miracle of life being restored back into a person that's dead is a theme that runs throughout, right? Barrenness giving way to new life and childbirth and joy is a theme that runs throughout Scripture and has culminated in Jesus, right? And then a person dying and having their life being restored back to them is a theme that runs throughout Scripture and has culminated in Jesus. And not just, in, not just when he raises these people from the dead, these children and, and his friend Lazarus, but when Jesus himself gets up out of the grave and is raised from, from the dead. Verse 38, Elisha came then to Gilgal, where there was a famine in the land. As one of the prophets was sitting there before him, uh, he said to his servant, set on, the, set on the large pot and boil a stew for the sons of the prophets. Elisha's like, we're hungry, let's, let's make some food. And then one of them went out into the field to gather herbs, and he found a wild vine, and he gathered from it into his lap full of wild gourds, and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. I'm not like a culinary expert, I'd advise against this. Right? Don't just go outside to some random tree, random vine, cut stuff off of it, put it into your dinner, and eat it. Probably won't taste good, and it might kill you. Verse 40, And then they poured out uh, some of the stew for the men to eat, but when they were eating the stew, they cried out, Oh man of God, there's death in the pot! And they could not eat it. It was poisonous. The guy just got random, put it in there, it's poisonous, they're all you know, getting sick, dying, whatever it is. And Elisha said, bring me some flour. And he threw the flour into the pot. And he said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And then there was no harm in the pot. 
Similar to how he threw salt into the spring back in chapter 1. He throws flour into the stew here in chapter 3. And you get healing where there was, you know, toxicity. You get life out of, of death through this miraculous, right? Like the spring was this like, like it's, it's impossible for a handful of salt to like affect all of the water in the spring and all of the new water that's flowing into the spring. And it's impossible for this little bit of flour to, you know, somehow make this whole pot not poisonous. And yet it does through God's miraculous supernatural intervention. Verse 42, And then a man came from Baal, Baal, from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain from his sack. And Elisha said, Give him to the men that they may eat. But the servant, is, tell me if you're, this is reminding you, right? Then the servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? And so he repeated, Give it to them that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They're going to eat and then have some left. And so he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left according to the word of the Lord. If that reminds you, of the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14. If it reminds you of the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew 15, right? it's like this whole chapter is supposed to be kind of setting off alarm bells of, of things that have happened and threads that are running through the Old Covenant and things that will happen and things that are going to find their culmination in Jesus and his life and his ministry, right? The miraculous feeding of people, taking a modest amount of food and feeding a huge crowd so much so that there is some left over. That's exactly what Jesus does. And so the recurring kind of theme is Elisha is giving us glimmers of, glimpses of, right? Small tastes of what life will be like in the new covenant under God's Messiah, Savior, King, right? When, when the Messiah comes, when the Savior, King comes, life will be made new, right? We're, we're going to live life as it was meant to be lived, and death will be undone, and, and the effects of sin will be undone, and we'll have life and joy and provision, right? Elisha's ministry is constantly kind of showing you faintly what that will look like, and then that ultimately comes to fruition in the, the person and work of Christ. Again, faintly during his earthly ministry, but then permanently and indelibly and, and clearly in, his, in, in the eternal state that we're going to spend with, with Jesus. And that's really kind of the, the main point. That's the big takeaway of this entire passage in 2 Kings 3-4. through 4. It's supposed to, right, the, the life and ministry of Elisha is supposed to remind us of the life and ministry of Jesus, who is God, right? Elisha was God's prophet. Jesus is God's final prophet, right? Jesus is the one who ushers in the new covenant, provides for his people, and brings life out of death. Elisha did those things in a small way. Jesus does those things in a permanent way, right? Jesus is the ultimate source of provision for God's people, right? Sometimes God gives, sometimes God takes away, but throughout it all, God provides God is the source of provision for his people and his people are called to simply persevere in the faith and trust in him so like chapter 3 when we're surrounded by adversaries and when things are not looking good when we're out of resources when we need God to provide we trust in God and hope that he will right when we're when we're like the you know like the the Shunammite woman when we're hoping and longing for something, praying about it for years and years, and it seems like that desire is never going to be met. We persevere and we trust in 
in Christ. When we finally get what we're hoping for, after years and years of waiting and longing and praying, and then, you know, for some reason that thing is taken away in a way that's painful and and difficult and we're hurting and we're suffering, we persevere and we trust in, in Christ. The people of God look to God in heaven as their ultimate source of, of provision. We're not, we don't provide for ourselves by our own strength or through our own effort or merit. We don't save ourselves by our own strength or through our own effort or merit. We look to God. We trust in God. We hope in God. God is the one who provides. God is the one who saves. God is the one who, who keeps us. And that is, was true in Elisha's day, and it was true, it's true today, right? God saves and provides for and keeps his people, not through Elisha, but through the true and better Elisha, the, the, the true prophet of God that Elisha pointed forward to, right? 2,000 years ago, an invasion to, right? 2,000 years ago, heaven itself invaded earth. Jesus, the king of heaven, kind of broke in, to the, the, the earth. The, the future broke into the present. The kingdom that, that Jesus inaugurated kind of came in, and for 33 years, Jesus walked the earth and lived in perfect obedience to his Father. He lived the perfect life that we had failed to live, and then Jesus went to the cross, and he died the death that we deserve, and on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he had lived our sinful life so that through faith in him, we could be treated as if we have lived his perfect life. And then after dying as a substitute in place of sinners, Jesus got up from the dead. He rose in triumph so that everyone who turns from their rebellion and, and trusts in him will one day rise along with him in newness of life to... to live with him and rule with him forever and ever, right? So, so all of these like little tiny glimmers of resurrection and provision and life out of death and being reconciled and, and kind of being restored back to the life that you were created to live, all of those glimmers that we see in the ministry of Elisha, they find their fullness in Christ. They find their fullness in knowing God and being reconciled to him through the person and work of, of Jesus. God is the sovereign king who provides for his people and brings life out of death. And he does so through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, our great God and Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge you as the sovereign king over all. We thank you, Lord, that you orchestrate human history according to your will, that nothing happens ever apart from your perfect plan. And we thank you, Lord, that you provide for your people, that you bring life out of death, you bring things into existence that did not exist And Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember and hold fast to the reality that you are sovereign and that you are good. 
We pray that, you can, that we could trust in you to save us and to take care of us through the person and work of Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.